All right, our text tonight is Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Anger aroused because of alterations to the gospel. Anger aroused because of alterations to the gospel. The text reads, first in Galatians 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different or to another gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort or pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now you don't necessarily have to turn there, but in 1 Kings chapter 13, there's a man of God, a man of God, and there's a king at that time by the name of Jeroboam. And the man of God comes to Jeroboam and he pronounces a curse on the altar and says that the altar will be torn down and its ashes will be poured out. And uh, Jeroboam gets pretty mad. And Jeroboam reaches out his hand towards this man of God. And as he does, his hand withers up. He's not able to use his hand. And after this happens, uh, then the altar is torn down. And the, and, the, and, the, and the ashes are poured out from the altar according to the sign of the man of God that had been given by the word of the Lord. And so then Jeroboam has a change of heart per se. And he says, hey, wait a minute. Will you pray for me and entreat on my behalf about my hand? And the man of God does so, his hand is restored. So when that happens, the king, Jeroboam, he says to the man of God, he says, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. And he says, you've done this, come home with me and I'm going to reward you for your service. Now listen carefully, the man of God said to the king, quote, If you give me half your house, I will not go up with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord. This is what God said to me, quote, You shall neither eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. Period. That's what God said. So, this man of God, he goes another way. And he did not return by the same way he came to Bethel. So he came down this road to Bethel. God said, don't stay, don't eat, don't drink, go another way. And he left by another road. Because that's what God said. And later on out there on the road, he sat down. All right, now our text here in Galatians, chapter 1 and verse 6. Now, As you think about Galatians, uh, I'm not going to look up all the text. You can do that on your own. But I do want to establish 
a pattern here. Paul starts this letter with astonishment. Now, Paul writes these letters in the New Testament, and you can go through them for yourself, but you can go through Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all through his letters, and you're going to find a very similar pattern. You're going to find a greeting, grace and peace be with you. You're going to find a prayer. You're going to find praise or thanksgiving or commendation. You have some kind of thankfulness for who he's writing to. Even a church like Corinth that has all kind of problems, you'll even find that introduction there. Throughout all of his letters, prayer, thanksgiving, blessings, all of that is how he starts the letter. Then he gets into the meat of the letter with one exception, this book. No thanksgiving, no prayer, no commendation. Hello, my name's Paul. I'm telling you, I'm mad, mad, mad. I'm astounded at you people. Have you lost your ever-loving minds? This this is the way Paul starts this letter. I mean, he just jumps right in. He doesn't make any introduction here. He is absolutely astonished about the fickleness and the overall instability of the Galatian churches. How in the world can you throw the gospel of grace out and then adapt some type of legalism that brings you back to bondage? What is wrong with you? He goes on to complain so pointedly, calling these false teachers troublemakers, that he says, you know what? I'm asking God to curse you. I want the God of heaven to to put you under a curse, under a ban, break you off from fellowship with him because you've tampered with the gospel. As a matter of fact, you know what? You can just emasculate yourself. He is forceful in his language here. Why? You've touched something that is genuinely of significant importance. You've messed and tampered with the gospel. And, And Paul is astonished that these Galatians are willing to listen to these false teachers. Paul, it's a, it's a word to mazo, uh, to marvel, to wonder, to, to admire is one context. To be extraordinarily impressed or extraordinarily disturbed by something. Uh, The context will show you if it's positive or negative. Obviously, here it's negative. Paul is extraordinarily disturbed that any one person would receive the gospel of grace and then leave it for something else. I'll give you just a couple of ways this word astonished is used. From a religious perspective, you know the Pharisees, they're a very religious bunch, and they're really hung up on their rules. And so... One day in Luke chapter 11, they were going to eat with Jesus. And you know what happened? He didn't wash his hands. And the text says they were astonished that he didn't wash his hands. They're like, what? You're eating without washing your hands? I mean, they lost their minds over this. Or in our context of John on Sunday mornings, you know, these Jews and Samaritans, they don't get along. You don't talk to Samaritans. They're worse than dogs, if you will. And you definitely don't talk to a Samaritan woman. You don't sit around talking to a Samaritan woman as a Jew. And here come the disciples back in John four twenty seven. They come back. Here's Jesus sitting down with this woman at the well. And it says, they marveled that he was talking 
with the woman. Their minds can't comprehend that he's doing such a thing. So that's the way this word is used. And so here in our text, Paul simply cannot wrap his mind around why a person would turn away from a genuine gospel of grace where Jesus does everything and you do nothing. Why would you turn from that to a cheap imitation that leads you into bondage? Paul's like, kaboom, I I don't get it. What is wrong with you? This is how he starts the letter. And his astonishment continues. He is astonished because they do it, look in verse 6, so quickly. Now, we don't know. You can read all the commentaries you want to read. There might be a couple of guys that guess. But how long is it between Paul's preaching and these false teachers that come? I have no idea. But in Paul's words, for him, you've done it quickly. You went from the gospel to no gospel fast. That's what he's astonished, that they would do it so quickly, without delay. They'd do it soon. And then look, so quickly, and the next word is deserting. I'm astonished you're so quick to desert. How can you do this? Uh, Metatithemi is, is the Greek word, to remove or to change. To have a change of mind, but it's deeper, to have a change of allegiance. A change of allegiance. Change one's mind, to turn away. Um, In John Stott's commentary, he says this word is used of soldiers in the army who revolt or desert, or of men who change sides in politics. One day a Democrat, one day a Republican. How did you switch? One day a Calvinist, one day an Arminian, one day reform, one day unreformed. How, how did you do that? How, how in the world is that possible that you could jump ships like that? And so quickly, how do you leave the gospel of grace for legalism? How do you leave the gospel of grace for entertainmentism? How, how do you do that? And this word, yeah, you'll know this word when we get there, but there's a guy... Uh, This is extra-biblical writings, but Donisius of Heraclea, he left the Stoics to become a member of the rival philosophical school. He became an Epicurean. He left Stoicism to become an Epicurean, and you know what he was called? A turncoat. You ever use that about your kids, your friends, they're turncoats, allegiance here, and they swap allegiance when somebody else comes in the room. You're like, daddy's little girl, now they're mama's little girl, now they're grandpa's little girl, and they swap. You'll figure it out. And then the kids, get, they just jump around with whoever's got the candy. It happens. They Turncoats, they're not stable. And Paul, Paul's like, how can you be such a turncoat so quickly? Jesus is set before you as the fulfillment of the gospel of grace, and now you're going to be a turncoat and go for Jewish legalism? What is wrong with you? Paul's very upset by this. From the one having called them in the grace of Christ. He's telling them, you were given a gift that you did not deserve. You you did nothing to earn this calling. The God of heaven reached down through the preaching of the gospel and called your name. And you responded by faith and you received the gospel and now you're going to leave? He's astonished. They're deserting to a 
You look in the text there, verse 6. ESV puts it this way, but you can just translate another, but I, I get it. To a different gospel. That's what he says. You've done this so quickly for a different one. Now, I've told you this before, but in the Greek language, there's at least two words for another. There's heteros and there's alas. Heteros is another of a different kind. Alas is another of the same kind. Well, guess what? This is the one for another of a different kind. And so he's like, how are you turning to something that's different? Let me put it this way. Maybe this term will help you. It's like if the gospel is a basketball, you've turned and picked up a football. It's still a ball, but they don't work in the same field. They don't go together at all. You've thrown away this. You say, I still got the ball. No, you have something else. You got a whole different sport going on here. We know it's a different gospel because of what is said in Acts. So just so you know this and have this, Acts 15.1, you could flip there real quickly. The whole Jerusalem council deal is at stake here. These time frames have to overlap to some degree. And so it, it's said so clearly in Acts 15.1, we don't have to guess about what's going on. In Acts 15.1, some of men, they came down from Judea. Notice, some men. I'll say these men are the troublemakers who end up in the churches of Galatia. So these men, they come from, down from Judea, and you know what they were teaching the brothers? This is what they're teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is what they're teaching. That is a different gospel. Paul is very angered by this. The other gospel was one... Let me put it in these words, maybe you'll get it. The other gospel was one that viewed Christ as starting the building, but Moses finishing it. So in other words, you, you must add your work to the work of Christ to complete the project. Look, friends, whenever you have some charlatan preacher come in, or you go to some other church, you go to some other religious festivity, and they preach a gospel that puts responsibility back on you for what you got to do to complete the project, it's a false gospel. Leave it. You should be angered by it. It's okay to walk out of the service. But I skipped a word in the text on purpose, and now we come back to it. I told you he's astonished. I told you they quickly deserted. I told you that they deserted from the one who called you from the grace of Christ, in the grace of Christ. I told you that they turned to a different gospel. But make no mistake about it, they're deserting him. Go back in your text. So quickly deserting him. That's the greater issue. His accusation is not simply addressing a desertion from the gospel of grace to another gospel, but a desertion of Christ himself. You've turned away from Christ, the very one who called you in grace. That's who you're abandoning. To leave the true gospel is to leave the God of grace. Verse 7, the word another not that there is another one. There's not another one. So it's, it's not, the gospel's not number one. Like if there's a number one, as my professors would say in seminary, if there's a number one, there's a number two. If there's an A, there's a B. There's not a one or an A. There's just the gospel. There's not another one. There's not one to count here. It's the only. 
So it's one of a different kind. As a matter of fact, there's not even another of the same kind. No one of a different kind or the same kind. There is only one gospel. Now, in the context of Paul, which obviously Martin Luther would pick up readily enough, but this is a gospel of justification by grace alone. That's the gospel he's talking about. And the book will show that quite clearly. Now we get the word that we got in John 14, 1, and we got in John 14, 27. Now we have it in Galatians, the exact same word. There are some who trouble you. You see that there in verse 7. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you. They cause this turmoil of the mind. They disturb you mentally. They throw you into confusion. Do I believe this preacher? Do I believe that preacher? Do I follow this group? Do I follow that group? My mind's all discombobulated, and I don't know what's going on here. My mind's been troubled. In Acts 15, again, as I say it, it really works together. And I I put to you before you the troubling in the mind get tied together in Acts. In Acts 15, 24, he says this. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, what is the result of their words troubling them? Unsettling your minds although we gave them no instruction. Whatever they're saying is making their minds unstable. Paul is like, why are you listening to these vain janglings? You know the gospel. Christ paid it all. Believe him. The end. It's all Christ, period. Why are you entertaining these other thoughts? Why are you listening to wackos on TV in our context? Why are you listening to goofballs on YouTube? Why are you entertaining your minds with all of this stuff? The gospel is clear. I don't need to go search Google to find out something. If you ever want a good read, pick up Martin Luther on Galatians. (laughs) He was not politically correct, and he did not mind defending people. I like it when guys talk like this. It's just that most of them are dead. That's what Martin Luther says about this passage right here. He says, quote, a man may labor half a score years before he shall get some little church to be rightly and religiously ordered. And when it is so ordered, (laughs) here it comes, There creeps in some mad brain, yea, a very unlearned idiot who can do nothing else but speak slanderously and spitefully against sincere preachers of the word, and in one moment he overthrows the whole thing. What an astounding comment Luther makes about this passage. A guy works half his life to make a true church, and you get one idiot to come in and blow the whole thing out of water. That's what's happening here. Paul's like, I can't take it. A bunch of troublemakers have shown up thinking they know something more than what Paul knows. The desire is to distort. The desire is to distort. Look in verse 7 again. There are some who trouble you and want to... See the word there, distort the gospel of Christ. Metastrepho, to turn, to distort the gospel. To cause a change in a state or condition. To alter something. 
to convert to something else. There's some that want to convert you to something else. That's the problem. To reverse course. They were not just corrupting the gospel, they were reversing it. The gospel is grace, and they're making it a gospel of works. That's a reverse. That's backwards. That's what they're doing. One more time from Luther, uh, a shorter quote. But Martin Luther says this, If you cannot believe that God will forgive your sins for Christ's sake, say it again, if you cannot believe that God will forgive your sins for Christ's sake, how then will you believe that he will forgive you your sins for the works of the law, which you could never perform? If you can't believe this, how on earth could you believe you could make this happen? Tampering with the gospel is always a trouble for the church. Now, I do want to take just a short moment and tell you some ways in our day that I think the gospel is tampered with in the church. Churches in general, I'm saying. And I'm not going to chase all of these rabbits out, but I do want to at least mention them. Now, this is an ongoing epidemic problem in church around the world. The gospel is tampered with when the gospel is not kept as the priority of the church. It's very simple. It happened here. It's happened here a couple of times. And, and then there's, by the Spirit of God, a stirring that would cause us to fight to get it back. So what happens? A church problem comes in. All of the attention goes to the problem. Everybody solves the problem. We have meetings to solve the problem. And it's, we got to do this because the problem has to be solved. And you use all this energy. And somehow you get caught up in all of that. And you wake up six months later and you're like, I haven't shared the gospel with anybody. I haven't, I haven't called anybody to repentance. We haven't gone on a mission trip. We haven't done anything on the streets. We haven't done anything with the gospel. We, we've, we've lost it. We tampered with it by allowing something else to take the attention away from it. We want to fight for the gospel in this church that we don't lose it. Sometimes I hear people say, I don't know how all these churches can do these things. They lost the gospel. They lost a desire and a passion for the gospel. And, and not evilly, it's just like through a progression, they lost sight of it and they became weak and anemic with the gospel. And now they just become some type of religious society that exists. You must. You say, why do I have to fight for the gospel? Because the devil will take it. And he'll do everything he can to diminish it because he does not want the gospel preached. By adding rules to it like these troublemakers were doing. So much in churches of rules. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to act like this. You have to dress like this. You have to talk like this. All these rules that have to be kept for you to be a good little Christian. Look, dude, I am a Christian. And I don't care if I do it like you or you do it like me. I am a Christian. You say, well, you're like this and I'm like this. I believe Christ. I believe Christ. Now, there may be some people on different levels in sanctification. Fine, so be it. But I'm as much Christian as anybody in the room. Why? Because I believe Christ. He's all my righteousness. I don't have anything that I can offer that gives me some type of substance to my conversion. It's all Christ. And I believe him. 
Don't give me a set of rules in order. I mean, it's so aggravated me down there in the charismatic ministry of beautiful feet. You got to do this. 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 And if you don't preach with signs and wonders, you really haven't arrived. Look, dude, I'm preaching the gospel, whether a sign happens or not. By adding experience to it, like the charismatics do. You're not really there, dude, unless you can speak in spirit. You don't have the full gospel. You're a heretic. You're just a flat heretic. I don't have to speak in tongues to be Christian. I don't have to have some baptism in the spirit to be Christian. I have to believe Christ to be a Christian. And this is a great epidemic by lip service from a need to make sure we use the right word or phrases in a sermon or on our webpage. I mean, right, you, you can look on the webpage. We believe Jesus is the only way. Well, you have to put that, right? Or you preach a sermon about how to be a better you for 47 minutes, and you get to the end and you say, oh, yeah, does anybody want to believe in Jesus? You haven't told me anything about him. It's like, so this lip service that we just tack it on, that's an attack on the gospel. Could we not deal with the truth of justification by faith, by grace alone? Could we not preach Christ? And then by subtracting biblical implications of the gospel. There are implications. Now listen, I'm not saying these things have to be done to get saved. I'm not saying that because that would be contrary to what Paul preaches and what Jesus preaches. But I am saying for a person who's saved by grace, there are implications, are there not? There are fruits of the Spirit, right? There are, if you have my commandments and keep them, that's the ones who love me and my commandments are not a burden, those types of things. So don't subtract biblical implications. He who endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Fruits of the Spirit, narrow path, delighting in the commandments, love of God, love of brother, so forth and so on. All of those are implications, but they're not steps to climb to get saved. Because I'm saved, these things naturally will flow out. Well, maybe we should say it like John Stott said it. Quote, the only way to be a good churchman is to be a good gospel man. The best way to serve the church is to believe and preach the gospel. What a word. Lastly, accursed. So we had astonished, and then we had another, and now we have this last section, accursed. Verses 8 and 9, even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before now, So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. It is the message that matters. The gospel preached by Paul is not the true gospel because Paul preached it. It's the true gospel... Because the risen Christ gave it to Paul to preach. Now, now, I would never be able to formulate it in these words. So let me steal last time from Martin Luther. He says, that which does not teach Christ is not apostolic. Even if Peter and Paul be the teachers. On the other hand, that which does teach Christ is apostolic 
even if Judas, Annas, Pilate, or Herod should propound it. And by teaching Christ, he obviously means justification by grace, by faith alone, by grace alone. Look, I don't even care if Judas Iscariot preaches this. If he preaches this gospel, with this gospel, I want to curse on me. Don't miss that. Paul's willing to pronounce it on himself because the gospel has that kind of value. And he says, you know what? I'll tell you what. If an angel descends out of heaven, if Gabriel himself come down and tell you something else, let him be cursed. He's not partial. Anyone that tampers with the gospel should be banned from the church. Banned. Sent out. Separated. Cut off. You can't be here and sow that kind of nonsense in this place. You say, what do you mean banned by the church? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Hebrew word for anathema, anathema is the Greek word. The Hebrew word is, eh, I can't pronounce it, you've got to kind of cough up a loogie to pronounce it, but, but harem. It signifies a thing that is accursed, execrable, detestable, have nothing to do with something, no participation, have no communion with God. So Joshua said this, Joshua 6, 26, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. You remember those words? If any man ever rebuilds this city, let him be cursed. What's the curse? At the cost of his firstborn, he'll lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son, he'll set up its gates. Whoever comes to rebuild this city, they're losing two kids. He pronounces a curse. You say, well, what became of that? Well, 1 Kings 16 34 is what became of that. And in 1 Kings 16, 34, however many years later, he says this. In the days of Hiel, of Bethel, built Jericho. Ah, but did not Joshua say if somebody did that, they'd be cursed? Yes. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun, the curse is serious. If anybody does this, they're going to lose two kids, and that's what happened. The idea or the meaning of this word in this text is this. May the divine curse rest on him. I'm asking the God of heaven to have his curse reside upon this man because he's tampered with the gospel. He's belittled it. He's added to it. He's subtracted from it. He's treating it like it's not a serious thing. He's acting like it's just something that we say. He needs to be cursed by God, banned from the church because he's causing injury to the people of God. He says, contrary to the gospel you received. It took me a while, uh, but this word is just a simple preposition. But it has so many definitions, I lost track. It's the Greek word para. But here in this text where he says a gospel, verse 8, preached to you a gospel, and the ESV says contrary. That's that preposition. A marker of that which does not correspond to what is expected, against, contrary to. Someone who preached something contrary to, against what Paul has preached. Something different than what you received. 
couple of biblical places here. Galatians 1.12, in, in the word of reception, what does he mean when he says, of the gospel you received? Paul testifies that he received the gospel. Galatians 1.12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it from a revelation of Jesus Christ. Or in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul talking to the Thessalonians about receiving the gospel. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And then one other verse, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command, command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. Galatians, you received the gospel of grace. You received it. Don't listen to anything contrary against it. Shun it. Ban it. I pronounce a curse upon it. That's what Paul is telling them. Any distortion of the gospel ought to bother us. If I preach, and sometimes I go back and I analyze and think through what I said, and if I feel like I misrepresented something of the gospel, it would cut me deeply. I'd I'd be like, oh my, I cannot imagine. Lord, please forgive me. I didn't, I I, I lost my mind. I mean, it would really upset me. It should upset us. The gospel's too important. Any preacher, known or unknown, who perverts the gospel, he ought to be confronted quickly. Is this what you meant? Is this what you believe? Then you ain't preaching here no more. We're done here. It should be a confrontation. When attending a church service and the gospel is made light of, it's ignored, has unbiblical things added to it, you should be angry. I mean, if you go to a church service and the preacher is preaching about his vacation at Disney and showing Disney slides, and he's like, what in the world? And your wife looks at you and says, how much more can you take? It's time to leave the room. Because, I mean, you're just making fun of the gospel with your Disney videos. It's a true story, by the way. We should have firm understanding to the true gospel so as not to be deceived by a false gospel. It is this passage here of Scripture that should remind us of how we should cherish the gospel, how we should fight for the gospel. There are people, you hear this comment, They'll comment about their family or their friends, and here's what they'll say. Well, at least they go to church. I mean, at least they're going to the Catholic church. Well, at least they go to that watered-down, milky Methodist church down here. At least they go to this goofy little thing over here. But at least they're going to church. Exactly what do you think Paul would say to your family that was going to a church with a false gospel? Dude, you're sending them over there to be cursed. They're going to be banned from God. Why? Because he loved the gospel. And he knew any distortion of it would distort the people. Our view of the gospel needs to be raised to the level of passionate love. What type of response should you have when something you love is perverted? Let me bring it down to practical terms. What if people say things that distort the truth about your spouse? What if they say things that distort the truth about your kids? What? Oh, in our generation, what if they say something bad about your pet? 
and your blood boils. Don't talk about my dog. Don't talk about my little kitty. I remember I was a window washer over there in Arlington washing windows, and I said something about cats. I thought I was going to be hung because I, I had offended them because I said something about stupid cats. Uh-oh. Sorry. I said something, and many people riled up. Where's the church in that regards about the gospel? Where, where are we in defense of the one that we love? Do you get angry when you attend a church service and the gospel's not prioritized? Does it bother you when the gospel is substituted by something else? It's dangerous, dangerous business. You remember our friend at the beginning, man of God, Man of God said this, God told me, you shall neither eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came, period. That's what God said. Paul said to, God said to Paul, this is the gospel, period. Well, the story went on. There was an old prophet that lived in Bethel. His sons came and told him all that the man of God had done on that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. Their father said to them, which way did he go? His son showed him the way the man of God who came uh, from Judah had gone. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. They saddled the donkey for him. He mounted it. He went after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak. He said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? He said, I am. He said to him, come home with me. He's from Bethel. Come home with me and eat bread. He said, I may not return with you or go with you, neither will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. He knows what God said. For it's been said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. And you know what the man of God, the other man of God, the false man of God says? I also am a prophet. As you are, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water, period. But he lied to him. So he went back with him, and he ate bread in his house, and he drank water. And when he left, a lion killed him and left him dead laying in the road. He said, you'll never be buried in the land of your fathers. And he went out there and picked him up, took him back, and buried him in Bethel. He knew what God had said. But because a guy said, an angel told me, he listened to a guy who heard an angel speak, rather than standing true to what he knew God had told him. Church, we need this. God gave us a clear gospel I don't care what anybody else says. That's what Paul is saying. It's all grace. Receive Christ by faith. You don't have to live to a standard. You don't have to be this or be that or do this or do that. You don't have to be in Sunday school and check all the little boxes that you did everything. Well, well, this guy's better and that guy does this and I'm not as spiritual as him and all this. I don't know if I'm saved. Stop it. Stop it. Do you believe Christ? Is He all your righteousness? Then rejoice in Him. Have you repented of your sin and believed Christ for all of His perfections? Then you are free. 
When you die, you can go to glory. Even if you have just a little faith. Because all that's required is faith. A little or a lot. Just have faith in Christ. Father, thank